Andy, my dude, have you heard of the magical website builder known as Squarespace? Ugh, not another Squarespace ad. I feel like every podcast is sponsored by them. <laughs> hey, 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 don't knock it till you try it. Yes, okay, it is overhyped. But actually, it lives up to the hype. Squarespace is like a website fairy godmother. With a click of a button, your site transforms into a beautiful masterpiece. A website fairy godmother? That sounds interesting. What makes it so magical? Well, for starters, those slick templates make anyone look like a professional web designer. Pick one, customize the colors and fonts to match your brand, and voila. Plus, the drag-and-drop fluid engine is so easy, your grandma could build a site on Squarespace. Well, she did knit me a lovely scarf last Christmas. Maybe website design is next. Exactly. And when you're ready to sell your Nana's handmade scarves online, Squarespace has built-in e-commerce. Add a store with one click. Get flexible payment options. Then watch those sales roll in. And when she wants to teach others her steezy scarf skills, Squarespace's new courses feature is just the ticket. Nana can set up her curriculum and enrollments and payments in a snap and become the next e-knitting influencer. Wow, you really sold me with the grandma angle. Sign me up for that free try. Just go to thenextreel.com slash Squarespace and transform your site into a beautiful Squarespace masterpiece. Well, thanks, Pete. Even though it's overhyped, Squarespace actually sounds perfect for Nana's site's needs. Appreciate the warning on the ads, though. I'll brace myself next time I listen to a podcast. Anytime. Let me know if you need any help getting that site up and running. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. We all love movies, but the world of entertainment has been shifting over the years, and now our options are broader than ever before. We may be waiting for movie theaters to reopen, but in the interim, we've got Netflix, HBO Max, Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, Hulu, Apple TV Plus, CBS All Access, and more to keep us busy. We've got more incredible movies to be excited about and discuss than ever before, so let's dig in. Welcome to the Film Board. On this episode, we are talking about Shaka King's new movie starring Daniel Kaluuya, Lakeith Stanfield, Jesse Plemons, and Dominique Fishback, to name a few, Judas and the Black Messiah. Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton of the Illinois Black Panther Party. Repeat after me. stolen car, five years for impersonating a federal officer, 
or you can go home. The Black Badges are forming a rainbow coalition of oppressed brothers and sisters of every color. Their aim is to sow hatred and inspire terror. I will learn all that I can. I These ain't no terrorists. You can murder a liberator, but you can't murder a liberation. You can murder a revolutionary, but you can't murder a revolution. And you can murder a freedom fighter, but you can't murder freedom. My name is Andy Nelson, host of The Next Reel, and today I'm chatting with two hosts from various Next Reel properties to get their thoughts on this movie so we can share them with all of you. Ocean! Hello! Uh, looking forward to having a lively discussion about a uh, movie that I am I enjoyed quite a bit. Awesome. And Ray? Hey, I think Ocean brought a pool stick to a gunfight. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, as we say on the next reel, when the movie ends, our conversation begins. So let's talk. Let's uh, let's start up with some initial thoughts of Judas and the Black Messiah. Ocean, why don't you kick us off? Look, I was in the tank for this movie the second I saw the trailer. So so my initial thoughts were this was going to be a great movie and it had to prove it, it would have to have proved my love for what I was seeing in this trailer wrong. And uh, it didn't meet my expectations. Um, I thought it was a very good movie, very well acted, uh, great story, uh, great perspective of the story, which was honestly a bit different than the perspective I was expecting to see. Um, we can d- discuss more about that as we move forward. But but initially, overall, loved the movie, um, have a lot of great things to talk about, uh, a lot of great things to say about it as we move forward. All right. Ray, what about you? Well, just like Ocean, I was pumped to see this ever since I saw the trailer. I'm just kind of sad that it didn't get to happen at the theater, but, you know, beggars can't be choosers. We still got to see it. And it was great. I mean, I just can't wait to get into the details. Let's put it that way. Great stuff. There's a, there are a lot of details to get into with this one. And, you know, my initial impression from the trailer was also, oh, this is going to be a powerful film because uh, the trailer featured a lot of Fred Hampton's speech. I am a revolutionary. And he was kind of doing that chant and kind of getting the crowd riled up. And it was like just thrilling to watch. And then, of course, there was the whole mystery of what's going on with Lakeith Stanfield's character, Bill. And uh, clearly there's something with Jesse Plemons. You find out there's this whole FBI angle going on and that he's an informant. Uh, it, it, I, I, for somebody who sadly was not really familiar with this part of history, weirdly, until the trial of the Chicago 7 came out last year, I feel like um, this was a really great history lesson for me, just so that this is a, a a stronger place that I'm now coming from in this particular uh, point in history. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's a great film. So let's start talking about it. This is a biopic. I mean, we're looking at the story of these two characters largely, right? It's, it's Fred Hampton, who is the chairman of the black Panther party chapter in Chicago and Bill O'Neill, who is uh, kind of a criminal and the FBI picks him up and he becomes an FBI informant. I should say he is kind of forced into becoming an FBI informant and uh, and has to infil- infiltrate the party and get close to Fred Hampton. So we're watching these two characters primarily. It's Bill's story. We're following him through the course of the story. Lakeith Stanfield plays Bill and Fred Hampton is played by Daniel Kaluuya. And it's really kind of a, this relationship biopic that we're following. But it starts off with these news clips that we're seeing. At the beginning, we're seeing kind of a news clip setting us up and everything, but we're also seeing an interview that took place in the 80s of Bill. It's in this particular, at the start of the film, it's played by Lakeith Stanfield as he's being interviewed for a documentary on PBS. And then, of course, it ends that way for us where we actually see the real Bill O'Neill in that interview. How does that work for you two in context of the film? Does it work to kind of in the world of biopics, I guess my question is, how how does this feel in, in relation to so many others that we've seen? I think that it's, I don't want to say unique because I feel like this, 
I can't think of any specific examples, but I feel like this isn't new per se, but it's definitely not a format that you see very often. And I loved the the two parallel stories running alongside each other of Fred Hampton and Bill O'Neill because they are two very different people and they kind of got forced into one another's life or rather Bill got forced into the Black Panther way of life. And it's, I, I don't know the word for it. It's, it's something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, it, it definitely is something. I, I, uh, as, as far as biopics go, I think that it checked a couple of boxes for me. One, I thought it did a great job of conveying the passage of time. Um, now it had the benefit of that the whole movie takes place in approximately, I think in real life, it's about a year, it's 16 months in real life. Um, and then in the movie, the way that they do is kind of like about eight or nine months, right? So, but it does a good job of, of that. It does a good job of establishing who the characters are. It also does an interesting thing that, that I found of the many things that are interesting is that um, you do kind of, when you're watching this movie, view it as a relationship film. And it isn't really, I think, until you further reflection that you realize that Fred Hampton and Bill O'Neill weren't really close friends, right? You know, and, and, and they're not even close in the movie. There's not, there really aren't that, there's scenes where they're together, but it's never just the two of them hanging out talking about anything, right? You know, it's like he's, he's a part of the trajectory of things that are going on. And as an audience member, since you're coming at it from that perspective of Bill O'Neill and then you know about Fred Hampton, you're kind of projecting a relationship on them that doesn't really exist, right? And so you are really kind of seeing two parallel tracks of, of life, right? You know, for this period of time, there's what Bill O'Neill does, and then there's what Fred Hampton does, and then every now and again, those, those things intersect. And so I thought it was a really great uh, device to to tell really kind of two stories that could turn into a nice four-hour movie and then condense it down to where it's a nice streamlined, entertaining product. To your point about the time, I do think it probably is about 16 months over the course of the film, because obviously we have a pregnancy almost from beginning to end in the film. So that's nine months right there. Plus, I mean, it starts really with them meeting, right? With, with, uh, when I say them meeting toward the very beginning of the film, we see when Fred meets, uh, Deborah and, and that's at one of the initial, yeah. uh, his initial rallies. And so, so I would imagine, yes, there's some time from that point to their relationship and getting pregnant and everything. So I think that the time frame is probably pretty accurate in the film to that 16 months that you were talking about, you know, and, in the world of biopics, I mean, this could have also been, I mean, we've seen these biopics where it, it explores a person's life from pretty much their childhood all the way through their death right. or through, a you know, a, a big moment in their life. You know, we've seen it in stuff like Ray, where we see a lot of moments of Ray Charles when he's a young boy all the way up through his life. And I mean, I, I feel like I appreciate this type of biopic a lot more. I mean, I don't get me wrong. I think some people do those sorts of biopics really well. And I think that it can work exceptionally when told the right way. But I also feel like it's it's a challenge for filmmakers when you're trying to cram a, like a whole life into a, a cinematic story. And I really appreciate these stories that that look at a smaller swath of a per person's life. And we just get to see kind of a defining period in that life. And I think that this works really well in context of both Fred and Bill, really. I couldn't agree more. I think that this movie, the way that it is done, perfectly captures the essence of both of these men. Uh, look at Bill O'Neill, first of all. Uh, like you said, we only see for, we're going to say roughly 16 months, but at the very beginning of the movie, you see him going through this whole shtick of trying to jack someone's car he gets picked up and i love the scene where he is where he meets uh roy and roy asks him how he felt when martin luther king was assassinated mm -hmm. and when malcolm x was assassinated and right there that tells you a lot about his character he is pretty much indifferent about it and he has no feeling whatsoever outside of his own wants and needs. And as the movie progresses, even though, spoiler alert, ultimately he winds up doing what the FBI wants him to do, which ultimately leads to the death of Fred. And, and hats off to Lakeith Stanfield for this because his performance, wow, but you really do see 
like in his eyes as the movie progresses, these things challenging him, you know, morally is what he's doing right. You can see him really struggle with that. And you can see that he is not the same person he was when he first got into this. And similarly, not similarly, but uh, with Fred Hampton, you get a glimpse of what was most important about this man. I mean, in the movie, he says himself, you know, I said I was going to give my life to this and I'm going to give my life. And that is what you get. And you get the the best parts of it, I think. I think that, I guess, that I, I think that you view Bill O'Neill more sympathetic than I do. You know, his indifference ahead of time and everything does let you know what, what kind of a character he is. And that he was, you know, and then how he, you know, had the, had the crime and then you, knew, you had the felony, felony hanging over him. And so then the FBI put him in the Black Panther Party. But I think that, you know, the, the movie, the way it's portrayed, there is some difficulty seems to be in the scenes at the end about trying to drug Fred Hampton. But beyond that, I, I really feel a whole way that he's with the FBI. Right. He's he he really, you know, because when he first comes in, I mean, he is impersonating a federal agent. And that's what he's doing with his crimes. Right. That tells you right there. He he does recognize there's the power of the badge. And he mentions that. But I think that there's also part of that is aspirational on his end. And the the line that Roy Mitchell gives them about that the Klan and the Black Panthers are the same thing. You know, I think that over time, as it goes, we in moments in the movie where you think that Bill O'Neill would be would think, oh, no, that's wrong. He starts to then believe more and more, no, that's right. And that he really is with the FBI the whole way, up until the drugging part. Like, that part was a bit, you know, there seemed to be some uh, some consternation, some issues that he had with potentially doing that in the film. But, but beyond that, I really, I really feel that that, you know, he was not conflicted as much as he felt he was doing a job. That's interesting because I, I I do see the conflict in him. You know, I don't think he's totally happy with the idea that he's going along with this FBI thing. I mean, I mean he he knows that he, you know, is going to go to jail if he or to prison if he doesn't go along with this. Like he was impersonating an officer, Grand Theft Auto, like these different things that he was trying to do were big crimes. And so he'll go away for a while. And so I think that it's an interesting angle that I, I'm assuming was taken liberties with in the writing because, you know, he's he is dead. As we find out at the end, Bill took his own life. I, I'm guessing that they kind of pulled that off of just their impressions of him. And I think that they probably took liberties in how they wrote it to be a more conflicted character as somebody who was trying was struggling, you know, from time to time. I guess it's not all the way through, but I, I think what I think the struggle, the what I enjoy about the struggle in watching Bill, at least the way that I saw it, is that this is a character who is selfish and he it's all it's all about what's in it for him. And it's not until he's like really starting to connect with the party and he's seeing what Fred's doing and he's seeing the Rainbow Coalition and he's seeing how people are coming together and the great things that people are doing that he does start identifying. And even Roy says when he talks to him late in the film, I saw you up there and either you deserve an Academy Award or, you know, you're actually believing this stuff. And, and, and I think that that's the power of watching Bill over the course of the film, because he actually does become somebody who really believes what the Black Panthers represent. And there's a lot of power in the way that he's portraying that. And it's a very complicated performance that I think he has to give. And that makes it so much more conflicting because he does still have to go along with the FBI. He keeps wanting out, but they keep telling him, you can't leave. We have you. You're stuck with us. And you have to go through with it and kill and and, and kill Fred. Here's the poison. And what I find really interesting about him as a character is that he consistently still takes the greedy choice. Even right through to the end, you know, he takes the keys, he takes the money, and now he's going to own his little gas station. And as we find out at the end, he worked for the feds through the 70s. Like, he continued another, like, 10 years or so of of being an informant. And I found that really fascinating. Like, this is a, it says a lot about a character who can't get away from that position of greed and that id satisfaction that he has, even when it's it's affecting, like what he's now coming to as far as like his beliefs and in, in what the party stands for. Yeah, I can see where you definitely get that from the movie. And it's a different impression than what I that I want to get from. I think that to make the movie 
in some aspects, as far as the the artistic license was to me making him more sympathetic. To me, all the yeah. markers of the real of his reality, the the, the way he was at the beginning, the the interview questions with him at the end. To me, that all shows to that he, you know, may have had moments of oh, I don't necessarily want to do this right now, but it just I really always felt that he was on board. The, the, the whole the, the whole way. Well, he asks him to get out like three or four times throughout the course of the film. Like he's always like, I feel like every other time he sees Roy, he's like, okay, this is it. I'm not doing any more. Yeah. I think there's, there's some of that, but I don't think that it, that he wants to get out and then is going to then be a part of the Black Panther party. I think he wants to get out just because he wants to not be beholden to the FBI for his own selfish needs at no point in time. And I, I then do think he is the world's greatest actor. I don't think at any point in time, even when Fred Hampton's given the, I am a revolutionary speech and I'm, I'm, I'm actually yelling at the yelling at the movie like right along with them when he was saying it. You know, I really felt right? I was into it more than than uh, than than Bill O'Neill was. I think that Bill O'Neill was playing a part, and also then when he saw Roy in the crowd, he kind of just kept on kind of playing his part, saying, you know, maybe he's trying to fresh, you know, express some frustration at the hold and power that Roy has over him. But he's just, he, I don't think he ever fully believed. Right, because he had multiple instances of where he went above and beyond. Right, even with the you know the shootout in the in the building. Right, when he went up to the top and then he held his gun out, that started to instigate the firing. He didn't have to do that. There, there was there was tons. There was you know, and he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do. There was you know certain things as far as uh you know either drawing out the blueprints of the apartment or doing you know doing some other things or wearing the wire with the explosives. I mean, he didn't have to go get C four, bring it to a. You know, put in a trunk, bring it to them, and then wear a wire to try to get them to implicate themselves that they'd want to blow something up. I, I really feel that he was on board, and that um, and that it's it, it, it's great to think of the way the, the way that um, he's being acted and portrayed as if he's uh, conflicted. But I just never bought that he was. Hmm. Interesting. I think he was conflicted, but ultimately, I do think you do have to judge him by his actions, and ultimately, he did. Like you said, Ocean, go along with the FBI. So, yeah. Before the film, how much about Fred Hampton did you two know? Like, were you familiar with this this whole story already? Not the whole story. I was familiar with him in terms of I knew I knew who Fred Hampton was insofar as I knew that he was the uh, chairman of the Black of the Illinois Black Panther Party in in the sixties. I knew that he was shot and killed in his apartment. And that was that was the, that was pretty much it that I knew. My knowledge of the Black Panthers was more on the Oakland Black Panthers, and I really had no real knowledge of Fred Hampton or the Chicago chapter. So this was all new to me. But I did a lot of reading <laughs> before and after the movie. I feel like we've hit a point in time, and just like everything going on in our world right now, I feel like there are stories like this that it's like it's just prime for these stories to come out because i think that there's a lot happening in our in our time that real watching these stories these historic stories allows for us to really reflect on everything going on now and so i feel like there's a real power to getting these stories out there right now you know and and so it's it's just i don't know it's really exciting to see these stories and and i think it's important for people nowadays to have these so that they can really learn more about all the history and everything going on with all these moments and everything. Yeah, I think that these movies are uh, definitely a good gateway drug to get you to to get any anybody to learn more about the history of the times uh, that they're portraying and about these people and then their lives and their struggles. I think that is that is going to be in, in definitely a good thing. I find that the stories are empowering insofar as you're learning new stories about, you know, hopefully people that you don't necessarily know the fullness of their stories before, there's part of it that is also discouraging to me in that it's like, well, when you start listening to things Fred Hampton was saying, it's like, well, we're still asking for that now. Right. You know, that it's, it's been 50 years and you still you still have a lot of the same things that you want to have, ha- you know, that he was asking for then that you'd want to have happen now. And so um, it's interesting in looking at the, the historical arc um, and how, you know, there are aspects of things over the course of time in history that are going to be better. But then also to reflect back to say, hey, you know, the you know, not every idea we have now is new. You know, some of them were being asked for, for before and that there are a lot of lessons we can learn from the people in our history. So. What moments in the film really stand out for you two? Like, are there are there moments that like really hit? Like, oh, that this scene or those scenes are the ones that this movie like. That's what this is all about. 
Um, well, for me, the you, you know there there is the the speech about uh, being a revolutionary, and uh, you know the the context of what he's saying there. Uh, not only you know, I think where he is priming the pump for is uh, even the at the time. I think Fred Hampton recognizes that he is not necessarily going to be long for this world, and so I think he's trying to prime the pump for hey. It, this is this movement is about the principles that we're looking for to achieve, not about me as a person. Why he kept on saying about how you can you know you can kill a revolutionary, but you can't kill a revolution. You can kill a freedom fighter, but you can't kill freedom, right? So I think that that is you know that scene what you know what what that means in terms of that you know he's trying to say hey this needs to be more than just one person more than more than you know more than just one or two people that is these um, the principles that we're fighting for and the freedom and the, and the freedom and liberation and that you know people having more power needs to be a thing that continues on throughout so so that scene to me really does you know really really hit really hits home for me in a, in a lot of different ways um you know you know and 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 also to the the other part of that scene was in the middle of the speech there you can tell there's a there's a, t- a time when deborah when she grabs her stomach because she i think she recognizes as well that he is talking as if he's going to die soon and she's now thinking differently like when they first met you know he's a revolutionary freedom fighter we're good you know if you're going to give you life to this i'm 100 on board well now that there's a baby involved she's like well hang on a second i'm all right with a a lot of things, but I don't want you dying, right? You know, and that it, that that dichotomy in that speech of where he's really kind of proclaiming and saying who who he is and what he stands for, and she agrees with that, but still has to then wrestle with the conflict of that she wants this man to stay alive and be in her, in her and her baby's life. That added another layer to that scene that you didn't definitely see in the trailer, and because we already had, I mean, that was a powerful moment already we have this incredibly powerful rousing speech that he's giving in this particular moment then we have bill and the fbi agent um you know locking eyes and kind of there's that whole element going on and then we have deborah paying attention to her husband in that particular moment it's just like there's a lot of stuff going on in that scene it was really incredibly constructed and powerful on so many different levels yeah how about you ray the one scene that keeps coming back to me is the scene the scene where Lakeith Stanfield goes into the office and finds that they're harboring a wanted man, uh, George Sams, and he tells the story about how they found a rat, uh, someone who was an informant, and they killed him. The way that they wrote that scene. I, I thought was interesting because they they go into a lot of detail about well first of all they went into a lot of detail about what they did to the rat you know how uh, they found whenever they pulled his body out of the river they found cigarette burns on him and they poured boiling water on on him and things like that and. In a way, it reminded me of the Harry Belafonte scene in Black Klansman, just because of how brutal the the killing was. But I think it's one of those moments where Lakeith Stanfield really did well because Bill O'Neill, at least as portrayed here in the movie in this scene, has a moment where you really see him start to question things in his mind. Again, hats off to Lakeith Stanfield, because as I'm watching him in this scene, I am 100% in his mind thinking, oh, crap, this could very well happen to me. What am I going to do? And in the meantime, you know, I'm here listening to them tell the story. Am I looking guilty because I look worried? Are they going to think that I'm a rat? And it was just a very tense moment, I thought. I, mean, I think that's a, a strong scene in the sense that you really get an impression as to an eye-opening scene for Bill, because all of a sudden he realizes what could actually happen to him. And it's almost like he'd been going through this bef- up to this point before without even realizing that. Yes, because he actually is a rat. And so therefore he has that concern. And I think that it, it does actually, though, the second half, or at least while it's not the second half of that scene, to me, the second part of that, you know, second punch of that scene is when Roy Mitchell is going to his superior's office and then kind of relaying this information, 
you know, to his superior. And then they find out that, oh, the, you know, that Sam's, yeah, Sam's is the informant and he did kill the person that they, you know, that, that they're claiming that he killed. And, and so, and they're kind of using him as a back, as a backward way to arrest whoever they want to because they can say, well, our, our informant is now a wanted man. So if he's with you, then you're with a wanted person. So we're going to arrest you. And I, the, and to me, the power of that second half of that, it was, I thought was a great device about, it made Roy Mitchell's character a bit more complicated, right? Because early on, he's just, you know, he's an FBI guy. He's just coming. He's basically, you know, doing uh, J. Edgar Hoover's marching orders. And he's just, you know, kind of like you're a big bad guy, evil that's going to take down, you know, take down the evil Black Panthers, right? And as the movie progresses, of course, you're going to have a different perspective. But then for him, of, of the Black Panthers, right? But then with Roy Mitchell's character, you can see over time, it's like, no, he truly believes that the Black Panthers and the Klan are the same thing and this need to be stopped for your basic criminal reasons. And and in that moment, in that scene, when he's being told what the what his superiors are doing with the informant, you could see in his in his face kind of the the disillusionment leave him, right? That he really thought that they were on the side of rights, and now he no longer does. But he recognizes that it's gotten enough uh, publicity, it's gotten high enough of the chain, Jagger Hoover himself is paying attention, and so therefore his career needs to keep going on the trajectory to get this to a resolution. But I feel in that moment, you know, our, the FBI agent lost his innocence, and, and I thought that was a very powerful moment and scene in the movie. Yeah, Jesse Plemons is such an underrated actor, Like, and, and the way that he carries scenes is just, I, he's just fascinating to watch this guy i love I, everything he's done i've just always been impressed with him and that there i mean there were several scenes several things going on with the fbi that i found really interesting one i think it was just i loved the way they wrote it where every time like when he came and reported what was going on his superiors already knew about all of it like they were already in the know on all of that and then later when his superiors are reporting to hoover Hoover already knows everything because it's like, that's how Hoover operated, right? Like everyone was always spying on each other. And I was like, that, that seemed very telling that that's the way it was. And another moment that I think also, uh, to your point, Ocean, about kind of him losing his innocence, it was that, oh my God, it was, it was a painful scene to watch when Hoover is like asking him about his family and they have that whole conversation and he's just like, uh, talking about his daughter, who's an infant, and he and he's saying stuff like, you know, you know, what are you going to do when she brings a Negro home and stuff? And I'm quoting the movie, yeah. But it's just like this, and and it hits him, and and he has to kind of have this conversation with J. Edgar Hoover about this and how horrifying. And and it's a moment of recognition that that all of a sudden it's like there's you know he has to all of a sudden. Put himself into this other world because Hoover flaming racist, you know, I mean, <laughs> I worked on a documentary about Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Yeah, I, well, but I worked on a documentary about Sheriff Joe Arpaio and you, you can see in, in, in these law enforcement agencies how they create these top down structures and whatever they say, they push down to the lower ranks and everybody really has to just kind of go along with it. And in these tough on crime or, it, you know, in these situations, whatever J. Edgar Hoover says goes and you have to do it. And that was a really telling moment to see him go through that with Hoover in that very painful moment and realize, okay, he's, uh, he's an FBI agent and, you know, they're not necessarily the side that we're on in the course of this film. But um, how interesting to see the scene play out that way, right? Yes. No, no, I, I very much so agree. And, and I think that, and that was the part that I appreciate about the complexity. We are clearly in this movie, you're not going to be on the side of the FBI. But yeah. in, the, in the individual of Roy Mitchell, er, early on, you can see it's just, he has the incorrect impression of what they are, but he still thinks he's doing what is right. And it it was it is painful to see, and really very well acted on on Jesse Plemons' part to convey and emote that that true loss of innocence, and and also the, where his character pivots. Right, he goes from I, what I would say is misguided 
right? In that he you know, he he had misguided uh, preconceived notions of what things were, but still was looking for legitimate crime. It pivoting to like, okay, my superiors want this to happen. We're not on the side of right. I'm not going to lose my career over this. Let's get this over with, right? And then that's yeah. when we started ramping up. That I need more information. I need the blueprints. I need you to draw out what's there. I need you to, you know, you know, when you started getting, I need drug Fred Hampton. We need to get this done. And I think that that's kind of where he was. Was that he was like, well, now that I no longer feel that we're fighting for what's right. I want to get this where I can move on. Yeah, you see that with his in in that scene you're talking about with with Bill, where he's that's where he kind of like it's almost like he's no longer the Bill or the the Roy that Bill knew because he because Roy says well, you got him why why do you need this and he's just like it's none of your business you just have to do it and it's like he's never really been that that guy before and so that was another it was like that was the switch you know that's something that he's now gone through because of this uh this whole thing so i was just gonna say such a such a cold scene for that character for a guy who's like welcoming welcoming him into his house and saying oh the good lookers down there you know have at it it's down in the bottom shelf like he's a really congenial guy like he's this really kind guy that we kind of like right and and now he's hit this point where he's just like this cold fbi agent like he has also had that switch and he's kind of following orders now Yes. Let's uh let's talk about some of these performers. We have some incredible incredible performances in this film and uh, you know we really shouldn't be um beating around the bush bush too much longer because Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield own this film. They are right? acting yeah. powerhouses uh from beginning to end. Uh what do you two think about these guys? Good night Gracie. These two are phenomenal. I mean Seriously, uh, both of them, if they do not get nominated for all the awards, then I think that they're all shams like certain people in <laughs> the Discord community say they are. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, they, they do uh, They do a great job as far as the acting goes. I think that um, uh, the things that I appreciated most about their uh, performances, a lot of it was the some some of the little scenes. Uh, little scenes like uh, when uh, so when the, uh, Bill O'Neill is kind of caught after the after they have the meeting with the crowns, and then he's you know the the other Black Panther lady has a, has a, has a gun to him, and they're making him hotwire the car right then. Right, it really. Yeah. looked like and did a good job of thing. like I thought he was making it up right like because you you didn't believe he could hotwire the car and you feel you really got the feeling of in his performance that okay I know I know enough to pop off the thing and I've seen people do this with some wires and it looked like he was kind of just like slowly touching them slightly to see which ones do it and then be like okay yeah those are the right ones right and and the to, the ability to convey that I mean that's a little thing right you know the, you know the you, people are going to give actors credit for the the big things they do like you know the big speeches or the big moments or they're crying or whatever but I think things like that or um the the pivot that uh Daniel Kaluuya does with uh with the, you know, Fred Hampton's doing speeches, he's super powerful, he's bigger than, he, you know, he's super uh, bombastic, he's bigger than life, right? And then there's the quiet moment of he and, um, and Deborah in the kitchen, right? And she's like, well, I'm surprised that you're shy, right? And he really does come across like, you know, like a shy little kid because the, you know, and part of the thing is, you know, he's, he is, you know, since he's bigger than life and everything and as he is there, he is really portraying someone who is 21 years old. Right. And and, yeah. and at, at 21, when it came to, you know, talking to girls and things like that, especially if you haven't done it a lot, you would be, you know, kind of shy and the ability to to pull both emotions off. Right. To be able to pull the I'm I'm going to be uh, fighting and, and, and I'm, I'm going to be fighting and really, uh, you know, really aggressive and, you know, yelling and, you know, doing what we need to do to can then to then build a coalition to be together and better people. But also the pivot to be like, well, yeah, but around this this girl, I'm, you know, I'm kind of I'm really shy. I don't talk, you know. You know, hopefully she likes me, right? You know, and so I think that those aspects, being able to pull off those pivots, you know, going back and forth throughout the movie, I think really demonstrates how both of these actors uh, did a did a wonderful job throughout the film. You know, you mentioned the the car scene with him trying to hotwire the car. I thought that one of the most standout scenes for me for Lakeith Stanfield was. Right after he and Kaluuya have the argument about the C4, they almost get into a fight and Lakeith Stanfield gets in his car and he drives away and he's just really angry. 
if you just watch him as he starts to drive away, uh, as I'm watching this movie, my my thoughts, my my emotions were heightened, and my thoughts were, uh, th- I was thinking, okay, he wants to, he's with them now. He is with the cause. He wants to try to. You know, take care of the opposition, so to speak. And then you see him take the wire out from under his shirt and you realize what his true motivations were. And you also see his, he's not crying per se, but you see his eyes start to well up. And it's just such a, an avalanche of emotions. And I was just so taken aback at how well he was conveying all of this. It really comes through. And like, especially when you do see the real uh, Bill at the end in that small clip in the PBS documentary, uh, Eyes on the Prize 2, and you get that little glimpse of him there at the end. And it's just a very brief uh, scene where he's talking about, you know, what would you say to your son? And that's that whole thing. It's a powerful little bit there. And it's a really interesting moment that highlights I, I for me a lot of kind of just the the internal pain that he was dealing with and everything and or at least that's again that's how i'm interpreting it and i think lakeith carries that so incredibly well throughout the film it was just it was uh, i i'm i'm really happy with the structure of the script and that we got to spend so much time with bill because i felt like there was a really interesting connection with him and the way that he evolved and just watching stanfield do that over the course of the film was brilliant but but i mean honestly kaluya was magnetic i mean he carried the role of fred hampton so incredibly well it was just uh mesmerizing to watch him and I feel like, uh, you know, and again, I've only seen the bits of uh, Fred Hampton's speeches that I watched in the film, so I haven't seen anything else. Uh, and in like one of the behind the scenes things. Um, but I mean, he just had an amazing presence and magnetism and the way that he spoke and drew people in and welcomed people and and really practiced what he preached and this whole idea of building this uh, this rainbow coalition. And it was just like what a an actor and what a challenging performance, especially when, you know, it involves the love story. And that's what I love so much about how Dominique Fishback's character of Deborah uh, comes into the story early on as this woman who can see, you know what, you're good, but your your scripts are all over the place, uh, you know, and if sure. there's one thing that I wish that we had more of would have been her helping him flesh stuff out so that you were really kind of making these stronger speeches and stuff, because I do feel like from the time we're watching the speeches at the end and, you know, seeing where we started from, I feel like there's definitely a an improvement. But I just like their their relationship was so strong and just and that's what I really loved about it is just this is a relationship film in several different ways. They hint at it a little bit because she's a speechwriter, you know, in the job when she gets there. So they they hint at that she is helping him out and do that. But I do think that um, I I was very pleasantly surprised at how well uh, Dominique Fishback uh, and Daniel Kluwer, their chemistry to pull off really a love story in a movie that is not a love story, right? You, you yeah, know, the, their, right? their love story is, is, is you know, going to be the fourth or fifth point you're going to come away from with this, right? But the, the, the not only the chemistry between the two actors, because Dominique Fishback really has, you know, I would say a limited amount of screen time, right? To, but be able to take that limited amount of screen time, make it where she then is an impactful character, uh, throughout the throughout the movie, right? Because I mean, in real life, she's a very impactful woman in Fred Hampton's story, so she should be an impactful character in this movie. But to to be able to then you know convey that with the limited amount of screen time and limited amount of uh, uh, the you know li- limited time you have on there, it really kind of conveys how well they were doing with the acting. And also, I, I you know would give a slight nod to the directing there, right? Because you know the, it does take a you know it's kind of a at least a bit of a three-way dance there to make it where you can take these small moments and make them impactful throughout the movie. So you remember, you know, even though she hasn't been on screen for 20 minutes, you still remember and care about her character when she comes back. The poem scene when she, he's kind of looking in her book and she's like, don't look at that. And then he has her read one to him. That really struck me like that scene defined that relationship so much about the fight and about the fear. Uh, you know, the fight to kind of, you know, with the Panthers and to to do so much more, but then also 
the underlying fear of, you know, am I a bad mother? I'm bringing a baby into this world. What are we doing? Like all of this sort of stuff. Uh, I just, I was like, that was such an emotionally powerful scene. I was just, I, I really, it hit home. It was a strong, strong stuff. I agree. The other thing for talking about uh, some of the uh, the rest of the acting, um, I do think they had a, a, a lot of good acting from uh, you know some of the supporting, uh, some of the supporting characters, right? So like the I think it was Ashton Standers who was the Jimmy with Jimmy Palmer and Al G Smith as Jake Winters, right? The they're yeah. they're basically the, I think that they also did a great job not only being able to very quickly build the you know the build the, the relationship as friends, but then also where you got to kind of see their journey as an aside as well to see that this wasn't all just about one person or one you know this wasn't just Fred Hampton's story alone or Bill O'Neill's story alone there were other characters as well that had different run-ins with the police uh, you know that you know they both were you know Jimmy's then killed in the hospital and then uh, you know Jake has the you know I, I don't know if he called a breakdown but you have it where he's really trying to find out more information about his friend and then ends up in the in the warehouse and then kills the cops and then is, is ultimately murdered himself right and so i think that they did a, a lot of i think you saw good performances really all around and i think that's one of the things i think is a strength of this movie is that there was no one that i felt was either doing a horrible job or i looked at and thought well they're just really acting i mean you know there's moments where honestly the closest it comes to me is that there's moments with martin sheen saying stuff but then it's because his voice is so Jebediah Bartlett to me that it was kind of weird to, to hear him you know, <laughs> you know to hear him say these other things so I was like I was like Jed you, these don't these don't align with your political views I've I've seen you for seasons right you know and so there's some of that but that these little little pieces here and there all kind of fit well and I think you know there is a nod to the actor for that of course but I think also then and this might be a little by my segue to kind of give the director some credit about, um, you know, to be able to weave all these different stories together. You know, you have the one big long story, but then to be able to weave these little stories in that are powerful statements of things like, you know, Jake's death. I mean, Jake's on the screen for what? three minutes total and his death is not only a statement on friendship situations that have gone awry the, the way you can do things incorrectly but then also the scene with his mother afterwards where it's like you know he did Ugh, yes yeah. he did this thing and this thing was bad but this isn't everything of it that he did right and yeah. to be able to then get Doesn't that from those him. little little pieces and everything and to weave that through yeah. the, the the grander story of Bill O'Neill's relationship with Fred Hampton I think was, is really part of where and I think maybe here I am Given well, I'm giving credit to the actors. I really think I might be praising the director. So I'm here with that. That, that was really great storytelling. Well, I mean, the actors are obviously carrying a lot of the weight. I mean, they're the they're the ones in front of the, us doing it. And so, yeah, I, you're calling out some great names. I just also want to throw out uh, Lil Rel Howry, who played. He's credited as Wayne, but I never remember the name being said. But other than calling him Slick at one point, he's the guy who is the other. FBI guy uh, undercover in the bar in the, in bar, the bar who yeah. gives Bill the poison. And I, I just like I was like, he, that was just like a fantastic like costume and hair makeup job that they did with him because oh, yeah, he was very, very well disguised. But I <laughs> just I I loved seeing him pop up in here um, after just totally loving him so much in uh, Get Out um, a few years ago. So, yeah, really fantastic casting. That was him? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He's the best friend in Get Out. Oh, dude. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'm on the same page yeah. now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, uh, I just, I really thought that they did an incredible job um, with just bringing all these people in. So, um, but yeah, you, you mentioned the director, Shaka King. This is his second feature film, um, but really it's kind of the big one, right? I mean, I don't think... The previous film was uh, anything too big. It was called Newlyweeds from 2013. Yeah. Just kind of a uh, an indie pot film, <laughs> um, which I don't know if it got much buzz at all. <laughs> got much buzz. Yeah, hey, look at you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, he did win. Shaka King did win at the, uh, the Film Independent Spirit Awards, um, the Someone to Watch Award. So obviously there were people... Um, we're saying we need to pay attention to this particular person. And now here we are. Uh, let's talk about the direction a little bit. How did you two feel that Shaka did? Did it feel like this was a director with an assured hand? Did it feel like this is a director who still has some learning to do? What'd you think? This was solid. 
man. I mean, at, at no point at all during this movie did I think that uh, this was an amateur or not or somebody that hadn't done that much work behind the camera. I, I, this was very, very well done. <laughs> this this might sound really dumb, but hear me out. the The shots that really stick out to me were the shots in the car. Uh, especially that very first shot whenever uh, Lakeith Stanfield asks for a car to get closer to Fred. And you have that shot where you're watching the buildings kind of go by and then it starts to turn slowly and face the car. I don't know why, but that shot just really sticks out to me. And then the shots of Stanfield backing up whenever he's leaving the headquarters. He, they're, they use that shot a couple of times. Just really like how solid this whole movie felt. Yeah, I don't think I'll have much more. I've been already praising the, the direction for the past five minutes now. So yeah, I think you did a, I think you did a really good job. Um, but I look forward to, I, I enjoyed this outing and I, I do look forward to what he's going to make next. Yeah, if anything, I felt like there were some points where, you know, maybe the pacing could have been tightened up a little bit. But I mean, that's, I feel like it is kind of a minor complaint. Like I don't feel like in context of a director who really kind of just tells a solid story. I think that this is a director who really is doing that. And I think he has a perspective and I think he is, is creating the world and, and sticks with it the whole time. I, w- I was very impressed. There's nothing in it that, you know, it's not like I'm watching, um, you know, a Scorsese or Spike Lee or somebody who really has their stamp. Like there's nothing in this film that's that like, I'm already saying, Oh, this is a Shaka King film. Like there's nothing like that. And that's never a problem. I just know that there are certain directors who really kind of have their stamp and you'll always be able to tell their particular films. And it might be hard. I mean, maybe there is something in here that will be something that kind of we come to feel, Oh, that is kind of a Shaka King defining feature. But as it stands right now, I I feel like those sorts of things are hard to come by in biopics. You know, it's, it's a, story about someone's life and so you're by nature trying to tell a true story and so you're it's it's a little harder to throw those things in and be more and have them be that recognizable but i think shaka king does an incredible job of creating you know this period in the late 60s early 70s in chicago like it just i feel like the look of the film it's got this this kind of grit to it and not necessarily meaning like the whole thing is dirty or anything like that, but, but it just feels like authentic. It just felt feels lived in. That's a great way to describe it. And it just, I, I, I love like even just the lighting scheme. Like there were some shots in this. I'm just like, Oh, just beautiful, beautiful setups the way that they lit the scenes and shot them. Yeah. I, I, I feel all of that worked really well. And that was a great comparison to when we jump into the world of the FBI and it's such a clean cut difference, right? Like the, mm. the, the feds have such a, like, I feel like we're always in some fancy restaurant when we're with Roy or the, their offices, everything is just so clean cut. Sterile work environment. Well, okay, so Shaka King, we like the look of the film. We like, yeah. let's talk about some of the themes because this is a, this is a pretty heavy film. There's a lot of themes. I mean, you know, there's a lot of messages anyway coming from what Fred was preaching, right? You know, heighten the contradiction. That's brought up where there's people, there's power. This whole idea of a rainbow coalition. All of these things, I think, are are such strong elements for us to start talking about, especially now in 2021, where there has been a lot of uh, more tension in our country. Um, how did you feel the film carried the themes? I am thinking they did a good job with really a couple of them. Uh, the Where There's People, There's Power, that's uh, actually, I've been looking up after this movie, found that there was actually a uh, famous, uh, a speech by Fred Hampton that is, is, is titled that, and that it did a good job of showing a theme throughout that really what he was looking for was to bring the 
people together. Like the scene when they're talking about war is politics, you know, war is politics with bloodshed, politics war without bloodshed, right? Then when they're dealing with the teachings of things, right? That it is more about bringing the people together and that we're not trying to fight fire with fire. We're trying to fight fire with water, right? We're not trying to, you know, so that that we're trying to just get the people together to come together on like, you know, on their, on really their common interests, right? And and that ties into with the Rainbow Coalition, which has been a a term that has been appropriated by others uh, since this time. Uh, The famous, most famously by uh, Jesse Jackson. But it, um, you know, the idea that, hey, you know, we have this, and this is the 60s, right? So there's a lot of different racial divides, right? You know, which there are racial divides today, right? But then in the sixties, they were more, right? You know, I mean, they were more pronounced in a lot of different, a lot of different ways that were concrete, and people could see. And that it was like, hey, why don't we actually, instead of, which, which was interesting at the time too, what? Don't worry about these divides. It doesn't matter if we're black, white, Hispanic, you know, Latino, whatever. That hey, we're all poor and oppressed, and we come together and unite as a people, we can then, you know, we can then rise up and improve our station and improve this life. One of the things that I I don't know if you guys would have taken this away because I feel like I kind of pulled this one in from out of left field a little bit. But one thing that I think I got out of this movie was how there really are the perspectives on issues like the Black Panthers, uh, are they a danger? Are they not a danger? For example, uh, it's not always cut and dry. It's not always black and white, uh, no pun intended. And you wonder, like if you had been living at the time, you would wonder, are the the Black Panthers uh, a danger? Or are the the police justified in all at all in wanting to bring them down, or are they really standing for something and doing it right? And history is written by the victors. One at the very end of the movie, you know, we see what really happens to to Fred and to the people that were in his apartment. It, it tells you in the. Uh, titles at the end of the movie there what happened afterward how the police said that these people were resisting arrest and they were firing back and this and that and the other and then it wasn't until years later that you find out that 99 shots were fired by the police and only one shot was fired by the black panthers and that one shot was because they had killed the one guy keeping guard and whenever they killed him he his body reacted and pulled the trigger of the gun he was holding so i, I think that that stuck with me as, as a theme just uh, how you really need to not everything is cut and dried not everything is black and white there are so many layers to these things yeah i think that's uh, very true and I, and that's what i really appreciate about the film is that they paint all the characters fully fleshed out like it's not just the good guys or the bad guys but everybody has a real sense of kind of being a real character and you don't often always see that and it's nice to get a sense that they were really working on on trying to uh, kind of make sure we felt a, a sense of all of these uh, people so it is powerful i mean the themes in this film everything in it really kind of came through in a very powerful way it's just i thought that they did an incredible job getting the message across Looking at the technical side of the film, the only thing that, uh, I mean, we talked about the look and uh, the camera a little bit, but I mean, I will say, I thought the music was great. I loved the, yes. they had those discordant horn hits uh, throughout the score. And I was just like, that was a really interesting way to kind of play. It was almost like the two characters. It was like almost the notes were representative of these two characters and kind of like this, this clash. And I thought that was just powerful. So. For sure. The music was so, so terrific in this movie. I agree. Uh, any last thoughts? In looking at the theme of the movie, of, uh, theme of the movie as a whole and everything, I felt that it was misnamed. And so the the reason I feel it was misnamed is that, you know because it's Judas and the Black Messiah, right? Hence, it implying that you know that you have a turncoat inside of your organization or something like that. And so I think that. Really, what I, what I felt, and, and part of it is, and I'll get to it as far as the, the, the ending scene is really where it kind of solidified this thought for me, was 
Judas, in, in the story with Judas betraying Christ, he was a believer, right? He went to the Romans and they, he wanted to, he got the 30 pieces of silver, but his thought was that Jesus was then going to rise up and demonstrate to the Romans and everyone in the world that he was God. And he was a real believer in this and it just went, you know, a different way, right? But in, Bill O'Neill wasn't a believer, Right. And, and I, and he, he wasn't like a member of the Black Panther Party that the FBI then turned, right? They, they put him in that position. And that really, he's not a Judas. I, I think of him, he's, he's an infiltrator, right? He's an infiltrator, he's an undercover, uh, undercover cop. And I think that a lot of the things about, you know, how he was with them and everything, how he was with the characters throughout the film is a reflection of he did start to get to know them and care about them as people, but it was not, vastly dissimilar than you see with an undercover operative that is an undercover cop taking on a drug kingpin, hangs out with him enough after a while, does think of him as a good person, right? But it still does his job. A lot of that to me crystallized and, and I was at the, you know, I kind of I was still this way throughout most of the film and it crystallized for me at the end when they show him in the interview and the question of what would you tell your son to say that like, you know, I wasn't some armchair revolutionary sitting on the sideline. I did what I, I had a position, I had a stance and I did the things that I did. And, and he, and also, which I don't remember if he says this in the movie or when I just looked up the interview later, but he also does mention how he never felt that he betrayed. He doesn't feel that he betrayed Fred Hampton or the Black Panthers or anything because he, he wasn't a member. He wasn't part of, he wasn't a believer and a part of that group. Really, what he was at all times, all the way throughout, was someone who was in, infiltrating them to take down, you know, take take this, take them down. And so I feel that it was interestingly misnamed. I mean, it works in that you know that it's called that, but it, it, it to me, I felt that Judas, because he wasn't a believer, he wasn't a Judas. He was he's something else. Do you prefer the original title? Jesus was my homeboy. <laughs> if that was the original title, that's funny. And if it was, then yes, I think that would have been better titled because, yeah, that would have been more fitting. They were they were homies. They hung out and everything, but he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a believer. Well, I I I would disagree with you about the title. I actually think, even I mean, sure. I mean, yes. If you really read into it, I can see. I can very much see your point. But at the same time, I think that the title really says a lot about kind of this story mm-hmm. and everything. So I, I think it's. I, I think it's an interesting title, and I love titles that actually have a lot in it, and it makes me actually think about it as opposed to plenty of films with very forgettable titles. And you hear the title, and you're like, "What is that movie about?" I, like I don't even remember because some sometimes titles are so bad. So. If nothing else, I do think that the title helps us stand out. Yeah. And you know something? I think I, I see totally where you're coming from with the him not being a believer with the Black Panthers thing. But I think that Bill O'Neill, at least as he's portrayed in this movie, and Judas Iscariot in the Bible are very, very similar because they're both very selfish people. And one thing that I was actually thinking about during the movie was how in the Bible there's the scene where uh, Jesus and his disciples are at the home of the sisters, Martha and Mary, and Mary washes the feet of Christ and then dries his feet with her hair and pours this really expensive ointment on his feet. And Judas, instead of, you know, being in reverence of Christ at this moment, thinks selfishly, that's expensive ointment. We could have sold that and gotten some money, and I could have had some of that money. And that, I think, is a perfect parallel for who Bill O'Neill is in this movie. He's only looking out for number one. Interesting. Well, it's a powerful film, no matter how you slice it, whatever it's called. Um, (laughs) I, I think that they did an incredible job putting this together with an incredible cast, well directed. I think it's something that everybody should see at some point, just, you know, really start getting a a handle on this part of our history. And um, weirdly, it does pair, interestingly, with uh, Trial of the Chicago 7, since they do kind of take place right around the same period of time in Chicago. But um, personally, I would say this is the better film 
Um, and since we're talking about, you know, better films and rankings and stuff, let's, let's talk about our letterboxd rankings. So, uh, over at letterboxd.com, you can rank your, uh, films on a five star scale with a half stars. And, you know, we love the people at letterboxd. Letterboxd, uh, provides discounts for anyone listening to our shows. You can get a 20% discount on your pro and patron memberships and, uh, even renewals. You just go to the nextreel.com slash letterbox and you can get that discount so um ocean what would you give this out of uh five stars where would you land <laughs> well let, let's be honest I, I opened it on front street i started in the tank of this movie and i never got out of the tank so it's for me it's five <laughs> stars and a heart i i loved everything about this movie yeah it's a it's a solid film uh, ray what about you four and a half and a heart for me and for me i'm also four and a half and a heart i think that there's uh there's very little uh, to there, there's so few problems with this film. I mean, I did have some pacing issue, issues throughout, and, and you know, biopics are tricky anyway. But I think that this film is is uh, it has a sense of urgency. It's something that feels relevant very much to today and needs to be seen. It's an incredible story and uh, one that is told very well and performed very well. So, uh, all right, gents, uh, let's wrap this thing up. Last thoughts. Uh, any final remarks on the movie, Ocean? I, I have, the only thing I can add is uh, you definitely should go out and go see it. There's tons of themes. It's a lot of things that unpack about it. And um, I encourage anyone that does see it to, to let it be the springboard to learn more about that time in history and these people. How about you, Ray? After seeing this movie, I'm just really excited to see what's next for Kaluuya, Stanfield, and uh, Shaka King. It's a strong film worth checking out, everybody. So uh, give it a chance. Um, Next up on the film board, um, our second film for February, we're going to be looking at Nomadland, which is coming out in just a week. Uh, uh, Chloe Zhao's new film with Frances McDormand as a uh, somebody roving around the country in her motorhome. It's getting a lot of good buzz. It's going to be a fun one to talk about. So join me here in just one week. We'll talk about that film. Don't forget to join our online community with fellow movie lovers. You can learn more at thenextreel.com slash discord. And if you're interested in supporting us to help us keep the lights on and you can get some great benefits while you're at it, head to thenextreel.com slash membership. That's it, everybody. Thanks for joining us to talk about Judas and the Black Messiah here at The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Here on the film board, we have covered quite a variety of great page-to-screen adaptations over the years, from superheroes like Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises, based on stories like Nightfall and The Dark Knight Returns, to horror and sci-fi like Max Brooks's World War Z and Hiroshi Sakazuraka's All You Need Is Kill, which became one of our favorites, Edge of Tomorrow, with Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt. And who could forget Andy Weir's stranded astronaut adventure, The Martian, or Dave Eggers' tech thriller, The Circle? Supposedly so much better than the movie. We've also explored Stephen King epics like The Dark Tower and It, biopics like Damien Chazelle's First Man, and sweeping sagas like Denis Villeneuve's take on Frank Herbert's Dune. And don't forget Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, based on David Grant's nonfiction book about the 1920s murders of the Osage Nation. I just finished the book, and it's fantastic. It's always fascinating to look at the source material, and we often do as the book lovers we are. For those of you out there who love to do the same, head to thenextreel.com slash originals to find all of our past episodes and dive deeper into these adapted stories. And it's not just stories. We've included things like the video games Uncharted and Detective Pikachu. That's right. Thenextreel.com slash originals is your one-stop shop for in-depth looks at the sources for cinematic adaptations that we have discussed. Every purchase you make supports the film board and The Next Reel's family of shows. So what are you waiting for? Head to thenextreel.com slash originals and get your next read today. (laughs) 